seems like all the church ever does is talk about money. Church just wants your money. Your pastor just wants your money. If you've ever thought that, you're not alone. I'm sure that many of you in this room have thought at some time in the past, or maybe in the present, uh, that churches only exist to find a way to wrestle your hard-earned dollar out of your hands. And unfortunately, some churches and some pastors have made that really, really easy to believe, especially when you hear the latest scandal about the pastor who's embezzled from his church or the one who preaches in $1,000 sneakers. These were $24.99 at Shoe Carnival, by the way. Uh, Or (laughs) the pastor with the $2 million house. You know, just like many other professions or many other organizations, there are a few bad apples that can ruin it for the rest of us who are trying to do things the right way. So if you're skeptical, I get that. And I want you to know I've been exactly where you are. I've sat in your seat before. But as we enter into this three-week series called In God We Trust, I want to invite you humbly but confidently to believe that maybe God has something for you in this series. Like even if the, you're the most skeptical among us, I believe that if you hang with us for the next three weeks, now you're going to learn something about our Heavenly Father and what He wants for you and what He has for you in the area of finances. We're going to talk about what the Bible has to say about money and finances, and we're going to learn how so many of our attitudes towards our money can be the cause of so much pain and anxiety and suffering in our lives. And you're going to hear some wisdom from Jesus himself about how we can change some of those harmful patterns in our life and to be prepared for whatever God has for us next. So if you've got your Bible, I want to invite you to open them to Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a blue one on the floor around you. It's page uh, 679 in those Bibles. We're going to start there in Matthew chapter 6. But before we do, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, I do believe that. I believe you've got something for each of us, even when it comes to money and finances. Lord, I know that in a lot of ways, money has a stronghold on on our hearts. And I believe that uh, Jesus, you knew that uh, from the very beginning. That's why you talked about it so much. And so, Lord, I just want you to uh, help us over this next three weeks to loosen the grip we have on our money and help see what you might have for us uh, in this area of money and finances. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2018, uh, climber Alex Honnold uh, completed what is widely considered the hardest free solo climb that has ever been accomplished. In just under four hours, he climbed the entire 3,200 sheer vertical feet of El Capitan uh, with no rope and no harness. And National Geographic followed this adventure, made a movie called Feet Free Solo, uh, which if you haven't seen it, it's really amazing to watch. I will warn you, it has some language in it. So if you don't like that, you're going to have to watch it on mute. But even if you watched it on mute, it's still worth watching uh, because the cinematography is fantastic. The story is incredible. And Alex Honnold is just a, uh, he's a beast. He's a uh, person who is just um, obsessed with mountain climbing. I mean, here's the thing about climbing with no harness and no rope. If you lose your grip, you're dead. I mean, you get above about 100 feet and you are not gonna be able to fall off the side of that mountain. In fact, there's a line in the film from one of Alex's friends who said, everyone I know who has made free solo climbing a part of their life is dead now. 
I mean, it's amazing. And when you see how this is done, you'll be amazed at some of the tiny little handholds that you have to grip to keep yourself alive on this rock. Now, can you imagine your entire life being dependent on that grip? I, I think this is why Alex's girlfriend spends most of the movie as a blubbering mess. <laughs> like she's afraid to lose her boyfriend. You know, many of the cameramen who are his good friends can't watch while they're filming this movie. They set their camera up on the side of the mountain and then they turn away and they just uh, watch the whole thing unfold like this because they don't want to see him fall through the frame to his death. Now, here's my question. What would make someone want to risk their life to climb a mountain like that? You know, I guess you could say Alex Honnold had a singular obsession with climbing El Cap. Like it was the primary objective of his life, and that drove every decision he made and everything he did. Let me ask you this. If someone were to make a movie about your life, what would your primary objective be? You know, if, 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 for some of you, it would be the pursuit of success. Maybe you've got some business idea or some career or you're, you're climbing the corporate ladder. And if we were to look at your life from the outside, if, a, if an unbiased observer were to look at your life and make a movie of your life, that's what they would see as the primary objective of your life. Maybe for some of you, it's love. It's finding love. Your, the movie of your life would be a, a romantic comedy. Or for some of you, maybe just a comedy because you haven't found that person yet, right? It's all about finding the right person to complete you. Now, for some of you, it's happiness in some pursuit of life. Maybe like Alex Honnold, you have a sport that you're trying to get better and better at that you're, you're pursuing. Maybe it's learning a skill or playing an instrument or practicing a craft. And if somebody were to make a movie of your life, the primary objective of that life would be all about trying to learn that skill or that craft. But for many of us, if an unbiased observer were to take a look at our lives, it would look like the primary objective is accumulating wealth. We think we can find value and significance in money and possessions. We put so much faith and trust in money. So we're calling this series, In God We Trust, and it's a phrase that appears on every piece of currency that we have. There's a good chance that you're carrying this around in your pocket right now. And uh, it's our national motto, but it hasn't always been our national motto. If you don't know uh, the story of how In God We Trust became the national motto, uh, it kind of goes like this. Uh, originally, our, found, our founders decided that the U.S. needed a national motto, and they chose E Pluribus Unum, which means out of many, one. The idea was that America was this melting pot of people from different uh, races and different cultures and different religious backgrounds that would come together and form one nation, and that together we would be stronger from many, one. But then in 1956, the threat of communism uh, was circling the United States, and Congress decided that in order to make us separate and different from the communist, we would put God on our money. And so it says now, on every piece of currency you have, in God we trust. But here's the irony. We put in God we trust on the very thing that so many of us really trust in, don't we? Now, I know it's not the only thing that we put our trust in, but think how often our emotions and our security and our significance is tied to the balance in our bank account or the 401k balance or our investment accounts. I mean, for so many of us, we spend so much time and energy thinking about money and making sure we have enough money and wondering if we'll have enough money for the future and worrying about what's going to happen if we don't have enough. We put so much faith and confidence in money. And for so many of us, it's the first thing we think about in the morning and it's the last thing we think about before we go to bed at night. And what has that singular obsession gotten us? Well, 
Today, the average American has about $38,000 in non-mortgage debt. According to Financial Peace University, there's $784 billion in outstanding credit card debt in America today. And the problem is not that we're giving all our money away. Uh, according to Relevant Magazine, only 5% of Americans tithe or give a tenth of their income away, which is kind of seen as the baseline for generosity, with 80% of Americans only giving 2% of their income away. And if you think Christians are probably better, well, that's not true. The average Christian gives away 2.5% of their income compared to 3.3% during the Great Depression. Now, that's the societal impact of our focus on money. What's the personal impact? Well, last year, Northwestern Mutual Life, uh, which is a life insurance company, released a study that said that money is the number one cause of stress for Americans, more than relationships, more than work, more than kids, more than sex. Now, what is that stress producing in us? Depression, anxiety, migraines, ulcers and digestive issues, high blood pressure, increased risk of heart attacks, disrupted sleep, and explosive diarrhea. Okay, I made the last one up, but you know... <laughs> If you're going to talk about money, you need to have a little bit of fun, right? But isn't it true that the emotional and mental stress can cause some of our worst physical symptoms, right? But maybe the worst thing that our focus on money produces is not the physical symptoms, but it's the spiritual impact. That money has such a spiritual stronghold on our lives for some of us, it can cause discontentment, right? I mean, just think about the things that you've wished for this week. It's easy to believe if we just had enough money, we would find life more fulfilling. We could be more satisfied if we had more stuff. But how much is enough? Is that a question you've ever found yourself asking? How much is enough? Well, it turns out there's a very simple answer to this question. Many studies have been done over the past few years of Americans ranging from $20,000 a year in income all the way up to $200,000 a year in income. And it turns out they're remarkably similar. In fact, if you ask a range of Americans from $20,000 to $200,000 a year, would you be, how much more money would it take for you to be satisfied? The answer always falls between 15 and 30% more. And so no matter if you're making $20,000 a year on one end of the spectrum or up to $200,000 a year, if you had 15 to 30% more, the average American believes that they would be more satisfied. So it turns out the answer to how much is enough is exactly the same as the answer of how many people can fit on a Haitian tap tap, just a little bit more. In other words, there's no end. There's no end to this struggle. There's, there's no end to the desire for more. That's the bad news but there's good news. The good news is that there's a God who loves you. There's a God in heaven who created you and me, and he sent his son, Jesus, who gave his only life so that we could have eternal life. And all of this is available to you, no matter who you are or what you've done. And because he loves you, and because he cares for you so much, he wants something else for you too. And it's this, God wants you to be free from the stress and anxiety that is tied to our dependence on money. But in order to experience that kind of freedom, we have to make some conscious choices about how we view money and how we manage money. And so we go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. This, this sermon is widely acknowledged as the greatest sermon Jesus ever preached. And since it's the greatest sermon Jesus ever preached, I say it's the greatest sermon ever preached by anyone. Uh, and it's, at its heart is a vision for how to live an obedient life and what it means to follow Jesus in this world. I mean, he realized that money is one of the greatest distractions, probably the greatest barrier 
for us following him, um, preventing us from trusting God with every part of our lives. In fact, for many of us, it will be the last hurdle that we cross before we fully trust God with our whole lives. And so this is what Jesus is gonna talk about in Matthew 6. We're gonna start in verse 19, if you've got your Bibles there. Matthew 6, 19 says, "'Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, "'where moths and vermin destroy "'and where thieves break in and steal. "'But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, "'where moths and vermin do not destroy "'and where thieves do not break in and steal. "'For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, that last verse is really key. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's the NIV. If you were to look at the SWT version of this uh, verse, that's the Steve Wallen translation. It's not available in stores, but I'll give it to you for free. Here's what it says. I can tell what you care about by looking at your checkbook. And for many of you, especially if you're, say, 25 or under, you have no idea what I just said because you don't know what a checkbook is. And so I can tell what you care about by looking at your Venmo account, all right? So it doesn't matter how you spend your money. Jesus says, hey, what you care about will be shown by what you invest in and what you spend on and what you give to and what you save. Where your treasure is, he says, there your heart will also be. Jesus is reminding us that accumulating wealth should not, cannot be the primary objective of your life. It can't be, it can be, it shouldn't be your singular obsession. He who dies with the most toys is still dead. That's how you can translate that last verse. The treasures we try to accumulate on earth are temporary. They have an expiration date. They waste away. And Jesus, so Jesus isn't saying money and possessions are bad. He's saying they're temporary. They're not eternal. They don't last. In a hundred years, they won't matter at all. And so at the same time, he's, he's reminding us that there is a way of storing up treasures that does matter. That, that there's a way of investing in treasure that is eternal, that we can store up treasures in heaven. So according to Jesus, our loyalty, our heart, our attention should be on the one who never fades. He wants our attention and our devotion to be in the only one in whom we can really trust. And so over these next three weeks, we're going to see that there is a way to financial freedom. Uh, there is a place of freedom from things like worry and anxiety when it comes to money. And also we'll see that there's a life where we can experience true joy that comes from giving and sharing what we have. Now, parents, you tell your kids to share. Right? It's one of the things as parents that we hope to instill in our children that it's really good to share, but do we always model that for them? I think sometimes we don't. The truth is, though, that when we are generous, we can play an even greater role in helping people find their way back to God. And all of this begins with an attitude check. Our attitude plays a role in whether we will ever experience financial freedom in our life. I love what philosopher William James says. He says, the greatest discovery of my generation is that a human being can alter his life by altering his attitudes. And if that's true, and I think it is, what I wanna do today is take a few minutes and consider our attitudes when it comes to money. Now, if you're a skeptic, I'm talking to you right now. I want you to take a few minutes and consider your attitude. If, if you think you're already generous, I'm talking to you too. If you're here for the first time today and you think, oh man, why the heck did I come on Money Sunday? I'm talking to you. And if you think that there's no possible way you could get any more generous than you already are, I'm definitely talking to you. Let's consider our attitude. Okay, here's the problem. If we're not paying attention 
there are some attitudes, there's some troublesome attitudes we can take up when it comes to money. Things like, as long as I can make my monthly payments, I'm in a good place. As long as I've got money to go out to eat, I'm okay with where we are. As long as I can keep the lights on and get us through each month, I'm good. And those seem like good things, right? That's the problem. That's the problem because we can become numb about our financial situation. We can be deceived in the way we think about money. And some of us are living deceived. We're living in denial about our money. King Solomon, who knew a lot about money, wrote this in Proverbs 14. He said, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. And so when it comes to money, there are methods we think are right, but they lead nowhere good. Solomon would say they lead to death. Now, I'm not quite sure how you spend your money relates to death, like physical death, but it's death nonetheless. And so many of us are deceived when it comes to money because we believe these lies that, quite frankly, our society and our media and our advertisers work really hard to sell us on. And so here's what I want to do. I want to look at the three lies that we often believe about our money, and then I'm going to counteract those with three truths from Scripture. And I've put these in your notes. So if you've got your sermon notes out or if you've got the Genesis app open, you can follow along if you want to do that. But here's, here's lie number one. The first lie is this. Money can satisfy me. Now, a couple minutes ago, I said that there is a way of living that can set you free from, uh, from worry and anxiety about money. And some of you who are skeptical in the room probably thought I was going to say, just give all your money to the church because if you don't have any money, then you don't have any problems. But the truth is, it costs money to live, doesn't it? I mean, we live in a society where things cost money. It costs money to eat. It costs money to have a house. It costs money to watch Netflix or go out to dinner. Money is not evil. And if you think the Bible says it is, it doesn't. Money is not evil. Possessions aren't evil. The problem comes when we think we need to get as much of it as possible in order to be content. And this spills over into the kind of things that we want that we think we need, like that car or that house or a few acres or new clothes or a better school or a bigger boat. You know, we think things will make us happy. Well, in another passage, King Solomon wrote this, Ecclesiastes 5, he wrote, "'Whoever loves money never has enough.'" Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Now, the Bible calls Solomon the wealthiest man who ever lived. So I think he knows a thing or two about money. But he wrote this looking back on his life, looking back on the things that he got right and that he got wrong, and realizing that when it came to money, he had believed this lie that money was going to satisfy him. That's the first money lie we often believe. The second one is this. It's my money and I can do what I want with it, right? That's a lie. It seems like the truth, doesn't it? I mean, after all, every good lie has its basis in the truth, right? It seems like that would be true. I mean, after all, I get up every morning and I go to work. I get dressed with clothes that I bought, eat the food that I cooked, and get in the car that I own after 22 more easy payments. And then I come to work and I earn a salary, right? Nobody gives you a salary, you earn a salary. But in order to do that, I had to go to high school and graduate, and I had to go to college and get a degree, and maybe you had to go back to college and get a second degree uh, by working hard on that, right? I, I put in my time, I use my abilities, expend my energy to earn the rewards of my labor, and no one can tell me what to do with my hard-earned money. That's the heart of free market capitalism, right? It's my money, I'll spend it how I want. Nobody can tell me how to do otherwise. Not the government, not the church, not my wife. I'm sorry, honey, I'm sorry I said that. I didn't mean that. But you know what I mean, right? In a way, that's all true. I mean, you set your alarm every morning. You get up to the alarm after 
snooze one or two times maybe. You go to work every day. You choose to go to work every day, even when you're sick sometimes. And by the way, that's why your coworkers don't really like you because you go to work when you're sick. But if you're a student, uh, you earn that babysitting job or you started that lawn mowing business and you go out to school after a long day, you go to school and then you go out and you work because you want to earn that money. Well, my college degree is in finance and economics, which by the way, set me up perfectly to be a pastor. Um, but what I learned in school is that money is simply a medium of exchange, right? It's a way that allows you to exchange the fruits of your labor for the fruits of somebody else's labor. In the old days, um, I'd grow you a bale of hay and you would churn me a pound of butter and we'd exchange those things and, and then we'd be even. But what if I'm not paleo? What if I don't need a pound of butter every week when I'm growing this hay? You know, what if I want something else to, to, to invest my labor in? And so that's why society invented money. It's a way that you can pay me for that bale of hay and then I'll take my labor and somewhere down the line, I'll spend or invest that in something else. I'll exchange that for something in the future. It's a way for me to take my time and my talent and get whatever I want with it. Well, although you gave your time, you didn't create time. Right? God, made, gave, God gave you that time. that time. Your time is a gift from God. And although you used your talent, and maybe you even worked really hard to develop your talent over time, your talent was given to you by God. And even if you don't believe that, there have been other talented people that have come alongside you and invested in you, and you wouldn't have the talents you have if it were not for those people. In fact, have you ever thought about the role that other people played in developing your ability to earn your living? I mean, without a competent doctor there at your birth, you could have died at delivery. You wouldn't have even made it the first few days without a loving adult to feed you and bathe you and change your diapers. Do you ever think about that? Next time you meet somebody who says, I'm a self-made man or I'm a self-made woman, say, oh yeah, did you change your own diaper? <laughs> Someone taught you to read. Somebody taught you to talk. Someone taught you math and how to write. Someone drove you to school. Somebody taught you to drive. Someone made the clothes you're wearing, the bagel you ate this morning, built the car you rode here in, and the highways that you drove it on. Someone made the mattress that allowed you to sleep, built the house or apartment that kept you warm at night. Life is a gift. Every second, all of us are dependent on the other people that God surrounds us with to survive. So maybe, just maybe, we need to loosen our grip a little bit on that word, mine. Here's the thing. This is true of you if you're a follower of Jesus. If you're, if you're not a Christian, if you don't know what you believe about Jesus yet, you're off the hook on this one, okay? But for those of you who are followers of Jesus, if you've surrendered your life to Jesus, if your life was purchased by the blood of our Savior, and if you've received salvation from him and you're seeking to live your life solely for Jesus in this world, if that's you, it's not your money. It doesn't belong to you. You were bought with a price. And I promise you that if something happened today and you were kidnapped and held hostage and the kidnapper said you could go free if they could take every dime that you had, you would freely give that money away. You were rescued. You were purchased at a price. It doesn't belong to you. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. We are not owners of our possessions. God is. And as children of God, it all belongs to him. You cannot, you cannot follow Jesus and just ignore what he has to say about money and finances. That's a difference of attitude. 
As Christians, everything we have is on loan from God. We are simply managers of the resources he's given us. We are stewards of those resources as we live out our lives on this planet. And the more we come to understand that and to believe that, uh, the more that should change our view on everything we have, our homes, our cars, the money we make. I mean, if we're really gonna live our lives sold out to Jesus in this world, we've gotta do some things with our money that demonstrate our trust in him. Now, I'm not saying you can't ever have anything nice or you can't live in a house you want or you can't drive the car that you've always wanted. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. As long as you live your life in such a way that demonstrates that you understand that it all belongs to him. We're just managers. Okay, the third lie that I wanna talk to you about is this one. The church wants my money. This reminds me of a a joke I heard this week. Uh, Two guys are on a boat and it's caught in a storm and they're they're shipwrecked and they're stranded on this deserted island, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And there's no way they're ever going to get rescued. They've got no radio. They've got no way of communicating. One guy is just freaking out. He's like, we're stuck here forever. And what's going to happen to my wife and my family? And the other guy just says, calm down, calm down. I mean, I make $200,000 a year and I tithe. My pastor is going to find us. The church just wants my money. The church just talks about money all the time. The truth is, we do one financial series a year. You know, we talk about money two to three weeks out of 52 weeks of preaching, which, by the way, is much less than Jesus talked about it. 16 out of 38 of Jesus' parables talk about money or possessions. There's more teaching in the New Testament about money than there is teaching about faith, about prayer, and more than about heaven and hell combined. So why did Jesus talk so much about money? because putting your hope in money is a dangerous trap. And Jesus understood the unique power and influence money can have on us. For so many of us, like I said, it's the last hurdle we're going to cross before we've given our life fully to him. I mean, think about what money does to people. Businesses dissolve over it, right? Partners split. Divorce happens because of it. People will cheat or steal or kill to get more of it. Nations go to war over it. The love of money can rob us of life and freedom. And do you know what else? So often it's the one thing that prevents us from fully and completely trusting Jesus. Now, those are the three lies. Now let's talk about three truths from scripture about money. There are some truths that could sound like lies. So just like the lies sound like truths, there are some truths that sound like lies. But believing them could make all the difference in taking a greater step in trusting God when it comes to money. The first one is this. Everything good comes from God. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Do I believe that? Do you believe that? Everything good I have comes from God. My money, my house, my cars, my clothes, my ability to take a vacation, it all comes from Him. I mean, we talked about this, right? I, I know you work hard, but if Jesus is the Lord of your life, all the good things that you have enjoyed in this life, those are blessings. They're gifts from Him. Fully understanding this is the key to relieving our fear and anxiety about finances, that the more we trust in God, the more we realize that he is our provider and he is the only one that's worthy of our trust. The second truth is this, that Jesus is the source of our satisfaction. Your money and possessions will come and go, but God will never leave you. Your job situation will change. Did you know that we're all temporary employees? Have you ever thought about that? That 
Probably somebody had your job before you came there, and probably somebody else will have it after you're gone. We're, our jobs are all temporary. You know, that's going to change. Your bank account might take a hit. You know, nobody ever said that you're not going to experience financial difficulties. But when your first love is Jesus, when you look for him as your source of satisfaction, the never-ending desire for more is replaced with a never-ending desire for more of him. And the third truth is this. Financial freedom cannot be experienced apart from a life of generosity. The generosity or sharing what we have, uh, what we've received with others, it activates your heart. It's, it's you acknowledging that what I have comes from you, God, and that I'm trusting you and that you're going to take care of me. But by giving, I'm saying that I want to be a bigger part of his kingdom in this world. At the same time, giving or being generous releases the pressure I have on myself to provide for everything. You know, being generous means that I'm giving up control, and honestly, we love control. I'm a bit of a control enthusiast, I'll tell you. And sometimes that leads me to trust my money more than I trust God. Where are you when it comes to giving generosity? You know, we're all at different places. Uh, learning to be generous is a, is a journey. It's what we've called in the past and we'll call during this series a generosity ladder. If you've been around, you've heard us talk about this before. And so for many of you, this may be new. We're gonna unfold this over the next couple of weeks, but a generosity ladder can help us think about giving in ways that maybe you've never thought of before. The idea behind the ladder is there's always another step that we can take. And so maybe you're in a place where you haven't really given anything. And that first step, that, that first step, which is a big step for people, is to give something. You know, if you've been giving periodically, maybe you start giving consistently. If you've been giving consistently, maybe you start giving generously. You give a, a tithe or a tenth. And if you've been generating, giving generously, the next step is you give extravagantly. The beautiful thing about this ladder is the way it leads to freedom and it, it leads to joy and it leads us to greater trust in God. And I'm not telling you that because I'm your pastor. I'm telling you that because it's my story. You know, I haven't always been a pastor. I haven't always been a Christian. A few years after my wife and I got married, we started attending a church and neither one of us were followers of Jesus, but we decided to follow him and we started to put our trust in him. And then I would put... Uh, $10 in the offering at church each week. Uh, if I could get change for a 20, that is. Because you go to the ATM, you get a 20. It's like, I, I gotta get to the gas station and get some change. But then the pastor talked about money. He gave a, a talk and I don't even remember anything about it, but I remember he talked about money and I started putting $20 in every week. And I thought that was really generous. And so I believed I needed to start keeping track of this because other, otherwise I'm not gonna be able to get tax credit for it. And so I started writing a check and every week, I dropped $20 in the offering a check when we attended. And I'm embarrassed to say this now, but there were weeks early in our journey, early in our marriage, where I didn't go to church because I didn't have $20. And I didn't want the offering to come by and not drop anything in. And so when I got convicted of this, I started writing that check as the first thing I did every week. I'd write... I got paid every Friday and every Saturday morning, I would write out a check to our church and I would sit it on the table. And that way, if we didn't go, I still had a check to give two checks the next time we went. And then I heard more 
teaching on money and I started, we started to give more generously and then $50 a week and then $100 a week. And then we started to give a percentage of our income, but not 10% to begin with, but 5% and then 8%. And eventually I got to 10%. I got to where we were giving away 10% of our net income. And I thought there is no way I could possibly get any more generous than this. I thought I'd made it, but the Lord wasn't done. He kept showing me how much fun it was to be generous. He put generous people in my life that modeled that for me. He put great biblical teaching in my life that reminded me that God wants to be my provider and my wife who has always been more generous than I am would find ways to give even more. And so last year in 2018, we gave away about 16% of our gross income, most of it to this church, but also to some of our outreach partners and other church plants. And I tell you that not to brag, but I tell you that because I don't think we're done. I believe, and my goal is, as the Lord allows, is to increase that by 1% every year for the rest of my life. And I'm sitting here hoping I don't live another 85 years because I will run out of money. <laughs> you know, the day I met my wife 29 years ago, 29 plus years ago now, <clears throat> I told her we were in college. I said, I don't know what I wanna do with my life. I don't know what I'm gonna do for a living, but I know this, I wanna be rich. It's important to me. It's, it's the most, the thing that I'm pursuing in my life. Now I look back on my life three decades later and I can tell you with all honesty, I'm so much richer than I could have ever imagined. And not because I have a lot of stuff and not because I drive a great car. I've got a Hyundai for crying out loud. But because I have allowed the Lord to lead us in our finances. I have allowed him to show me what it means to be generous and how much glory he gets when I trust him with our money. I hope you'll do that with me. Let's pray together. God, um, I'm so thankful for that story and, and that journey that you've had me on, that you have shown us how to be generous. And God, I believe with all my heart, you're not done yet. I believe with all my heart that money still has a stronghold on me. I'm just raising my hand right now. I'm saying, God, I understand that there are times when I trust my money more than I trust you. And I'm repenting of that right now. Lord, some of us in this room, we need to repent of that right now. We trust our money more than we trust you. And Lord, I just pray over the next three weeks of this series and as you continue to, to build into our hearts that you would show us how we can truly say in God, we trust. That it's not in our money, it's not in our finances, it's not in our abilities and talents to make a living, but you are our provider. You care about us more than we care about ourselves. Lord, show us how we can fully trust in you in this area of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name.